Hi, I'm your host, Lillian Yang. And I'm your host, Fakri Shafai. And you are listening to Food Nonfiction, the incredible true stories behind food. This is the story of the early days of Cadbury. We are going right to the very beginning of the story, before the Cadbury brand even existed. With the evolution of Cadbury, we'll also see the evolution of chocolate from a bitter drink to a sweet, solid bar. It all began with Richard Tapper Cadbury, who was born in 1768. Like many of the other Quakers of his time, he chose to be a business owner. He ran a successful draper's shop, so that's a shop that sells cloth, and he supported his sons in business as well. He passed the draper's shop onto his son Benjamin, and he advised his son John to look into a not-so-well-understood commodity, which was cocoa beans. John saw potential in the cocoa beans. In 1824, John went back to Birmingham and opened a shop on Bull Street, right next to the draper's shop his brother Benjamin had inherited. He sold things like tea, coffee, and drinking chocolate. You should note two things here. One is that the drinking chocolate from that time was not like the chocolate milk or hot chocolate we have today. It was meant to be a healthy drink, and it would take some more years and some more advanced technology before people knew how to refine chocolate enough to make a smooth drink. Two is that it made a lot of sense that John opened a shop selling drinks like tea and drinking chocolate because many people of the Quaker community saw alcohol as the cause of many problems in society, they saw drinks like tea as a healthy alternative. John's shop was very unique. Inside the shop, there were vases, figurines, and tea chests. The decor had a strong Asian influence. In fact, there was even a Chinese worker in the shop dressed in traditional Asian clothing. The shop was such a curiosity that people came just to look at it. John's shop became well-known for quality products and was visited by the wealthy. He experimented with many different cocoa powder drinks and decided to start manufacturing his nutritious cocoa drinks. In 1831, he rented a nearby space to increase his cocoa production. Then, in 1847, John's brother, Benjamin, joined the business, and the company was named Cadbury Brothers. The business was so well-respected that the Cadbury brothers had a royal warrant as cocoa manufacturers to Queen Victoria. But the good times didn't last. After John's wife died in 1855, his health deteriorated, and he suffered from painful arthritis. Things began to fall apart after that, and the sons had to step in to help save their father's business. So, in 1861... Brothers Richard and George Cadbury took over the cocoa business. Richard was 25 and a happy, good-natured person. George was only 21 and very ambitious. The brothers knew they needed to A. Come up with a new popular product and B. Find new customers. So for their new product, they worked on something called Iceland Moss. This was something that their father had thought of. It was a bar of cocoa with lichen blended into it. This was used to make what was considered a healthy drink. And to find new customers, they needed to hire more salespeople. Their father only had one salesperson. So George promised to put every cent he earned back into the business so they could afford to hire more people. Here's what the young Cadbury brothers were facing at the time. 
they had a failing business, their product wasn't great at the time, and they had strong competitors, including the Terry family. And yes, we mean the ones that eventually made Terry's chocolate orange. But they also had 4,000 pounds each, which they had inherited from their mother. They decided to put it all into saving the business. Following Quaker capitalism, they would close the factory before the money ran out. Because like a Lannister, a Quaker always pays his debts. There was a lot of pressure to succeed, not only because they wanted to save the family business, but also because they wanted to be able to continue providing good jobs for people. The Cadbury family, with their strong Quaker values, cared about people and society. Richard and George had a father who fought against pollution, alcohol abuse, unnecessary medical operations on the poor, and the use of small children as chimney sweeps. As an aside, John Cadbury pushed for the use of a mechanical chimney sweep because the lives of the chimney sweep apprentices really were awful. These young apprentices had to crawl up very thin chimneys filled with soot. They could get stuck, suffocated, and even burned to death. Often chimneys weren't straight, but instead had angles, and the chimney sweeps developed problems in their spines. To get them to climb faster, the master sweep sometimes lit a fire underneath or got another apprentice to climb up after the first one to poke the first child with a needle. That is terrible. Very, very awful. The point is that Richard and George Cadbury grew up in a family with a strong sense of duty to their fellow people. And they treated their staff really well. They took their employees on outings, they increased women's salaries, they provided a sewing class once a week, and they introduced half days on Saturdays and bank holidays. To keep their business going, the brothers sacrificed all comforts to make sure money wouldn't run out. They even gave up the little things, like drinking tea and reading the morning paper. They started work at 6 a.m. and worked late into the evening, eating a simple supper of bread and butter. After four years, the brothers were almost out of money. If they had to shut down the business, George would head for the Himalayas to be a tea planter and Richard would become a surveyor. It was time for an all-or-nothing gamble. Richard's inheritance was used up because, on top of the business, he had a family to support. But George had 1,500 pounds left. And this is when they made the best gamble of their lives. A main problem with the Cadbury products was the lack of refinement. Cocoa products of this time had the problem of unpleasant oiliness from the natural cocoa oils. So, starches like potato starch were added to absorb the oils. This gave drinking chocolate the consistency of gruel. Ew. I don't think it would have tasted very good. I don't understand how it could. I don't understand how it was ever a thing. You know how people are with their health drinks nowadays. That's true. People drink terrible stuff. I guess it still tastes like gruel. I don't know. I avoid gruel. But fortunately, there was one manufacturer that had unlocked the secrets to mechanically reducing the cocoa beans fat content. George knew that he needed to get his hands on this machine. And he also knew who made the machine. The only people that had the key to truly pure cocoa products were the Van Hootens in Holland. So George went to Holland, with no idea how to speak Dutch. But somehow through gesturing with his hands, he managed to convince the Van Hootens to sell him one of their defatting machines for around 1,000 pounds. George only had 500 pounds left to spend on the business. This gamble had to pay off. 
1866, they launched the super high-quality and super expensive cocoa drink called Cadbury Cocoa Essence. At first, there were very few customers. Finally, in 1867, the Cadbury brothers decided to advertise. This was a big deal because Quakers don't believe in advertising. Your product should speak for itself. The first thing they did was they got their sales team to visit doctors with samples of cocoa essence. And this got them attention from the British Medical Journal, which wrote that pure cocoa drink was nutritious and restorative. With the newfound support of the medical press, they then created the slogan, Absolutely pure, therefore best. The timing worked out because in the 1860s, there was increasing attention to issues with manufactured food. Consumer guides pointed out the scams that existed at the time and how to test the quality of cocoa. For example, if there was animal fat in the cocoa, it might be slimy or taste cheesy. And if there was starch added, the cocoa would thicken in hot water or milk. They put full-page ads into newspapers, they put up posters, and they even had their ads on horse-drawn buses in London. In 1868, people began to know the Cadbury name, they hired more staff, and everyone was excited. They also experimented with chocolate for eating. And remember that this was a pretty new concept at the time, and the milk chocolate bars we are so used to today did not exist yet. They had a lot of cocoa butter as a byproduct of making their cocoa essence cocoa drink. The cocoa butter wasn't wanted in the drinks because oil doesn't sit well in water, but it's delicious in solid chocolate form. They created what they called the fancy box. It represented everything Quakers did not, over-the-top indulgence. It was a box of decadent chocolates with different flavors, such as almond marzipan and strawberry, and each chocolate was given an exotic-sounding French name. Some fancy boxes were lined with silk and had a mirror inside. As they became more successful, the Cadbury brothers didn't slow down. George recognized that they could benefit even more from the public concern about food adulteration. So he lobbied the government. He suggested that cocoa products with additives should not be labeled as cocoa. As the other cocoa manufacturers battled against the new regulations, Cadbury got great free publicity. And Cadbury got a big win when the Adulteration of Food Acts were introduced in the 1870s, which demanded that cocoa products needed to list all ingredients. If impure cocoa products did not have proper labeling, any grocer stocking the product could be prosecuted. And so the ultra-pure cocoa essence sold tremendously well in the early 1870s. At the same time in Switzerland, Rodolf Lindt and Daniel Peter were busy making big advances in the world of chocolate. We'll continue the story next time. So, Fakri, what's new? I haven't seen you in a while. Oh, I've been all over the place. I uh, had to go to California for some weddings and to visit some family, so that was fun. How about you? Let's talk about your weddings first. You had multiple? Uh, well... This time it was just one, but I was there before. I, I've been flying back to California every three weeks for the last summer. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm tired of flying. I just want to stay home. I'll bet. Oh, I'll tell you what I've been up to. I went to the P&E. Oh. And I saw the super dogs, which are the highlights of my summer every year. What are the super dogs? I have no idea what this is. Oh, you need to go. You should go today. 
Because <laughs> you're going near the, that area later today, right? Yeah. Okay, so the Super Dogs, and they have a showing at 12.30 and I believe also 5 p.m., which you can catch. <laughs> um, they are these dogs <laughs> that perform a show. There's, like, courses. Like, for example, little things they can jump over or little tubes they can run in. So, like, an obstacle course kind of idea? Exactly. Okay. But then they also race. Oh, no. <laughs> um, and there's, like, a host and everything. And he, the stadium is separated into the Bow Wow side and the Woof Woof side. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and you have to chant. So you just cheer. <laughs> you just cheer as the dogs run around. It's really cute. I'm not opposed to that. I was just telling Lillian that I miss having dogs in my life. My landlord's dog recently passed away, and he was my my one fix since I don't have any dogs or cats. So it's so important to have your dog fix. It is. So maybe I'll go and get a fix tonight at the Peony. You need to. I completely support you <laughs> in this, and I might even come along. Except I don't want to pay again. I know, right? <laughs> Actually, it's cheaper at night. I can't remember how much cheaper, though. Okay, I'll look into it. Yeah, and I ate ribs, mm. like, a lot, and pulled pork. I basically got a big barbecue plate, and in order to get away with that, my partner and I did the grouse grind in the morning before we went to the uni. I was so slow, too. I was breathing so loudly. I was. I told him to put his earphones in so he wouldn't hear me just <laughs> panting away. Um, for those of you who don't know, since... If you're not from Vancouver, why would you? The Grouse Grind is a mountain, what is it, half hour drive from Vancouver? Something like that. Yeah. And it's basically like rock stairs cut in to the side <laughs> of a mountain and you climb straight up for one hour and there's not a whole lot of room for you to move to one side or the other. So you feel this intense pressure to keep going. Otherwise, the people behind you are going slower than they want. So... You can also do the easier route, which is to just take the gondola up and down, which is probably the route I would go. If you'd like to write into us, our email is info at foodnonfiction.com. And if you have some time, please go to iTunes and leave us a review. So we hope you have a great week, food buffs, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.